Welcome, everyone. Welcome, welcome back to another amazing episode of the Act Protecting Gate podcast. I am your host, Mr. Chase H. I hope you guys are having a great week so far. I think it's Thursday. I'm not 100% sure. Sometimes I lose track of the days, but I'm pretty sure it's Thursday. You know what that means? It's Friday Eve, and that means the weekend is right around the corner. So I'm really really going to give you guys a really 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 informative and fun podcast today now if you guys like philosophy if you like science then you really have been enjoying the last few episodes talking about racial science i really kind of want to bring everything together okay that's the that's the goal bring everything together and um kind of go over and discuss how these racial categories, how the idea of race was formulated, okay? It didn't just come out of nowhere. It wasn't like human beings just woke up one day and was like, um, I think I'm going to call them African-American. I think they're Asian. Let's just call them Asian. Uh, those guys are Pacific Islanders, and those other folks are Hispanics. No, that's not how it started, right? It progressed. Just like a lot of things throughout history, it progresses. Okay, there's a sliding scale, right? Things are on a curve, right? It's not in a linear fashion, right? Some things go up, things go up, things drop off a little bit, then people focus back on certain issues again, and then they drop off a little bit. So, same thing goes with the idea of the connection between science and race. All right, there's periods where, you know, intellectual scientists are all pretty much in agreement. Then there are periods throughout history where there's different opinions, different perspectives based on the politics of the time. You find this especially in the Civil War era when people were picking sides. All right, you find this during the segregation eras, right? When people were starting to fight for integration, you'll see the kind of sudden interest in racial science, and we're gonna talk about some of the early days today. All right, so that's my introductory rant. I always do it at the beginning of each podcast. Right now, what I need you guys to do, if you have not done this already, please, please, I beg you, turn on your notifications, because if you do, then when a new podcast episode is out you'll know you'll know right away so you're not you can't make the excuse chase i didn't even know man i just you have all these podcasts you know i fell behind no because guess what if you would have turned on your post notifications you would have known you've been you would have been watching you know whatever you watch whether it be forensic files like i do whether you watch freaking 600 pound life it doesn't really matter you'll hear a when you hear that and you look on your smartphone and you see a banner on the top of that screen that says a.p.e academy you know we just did another dope podcast all right so please make sure you do that also if you have a few extra minutes if you could rate us okay five stars but be honest <laughs> i'm not twisting your arm or anything i'm just saying i look at the uh ratings and reviews and i use those to uh, adjust the content a little bit, adjust some strategies, the content. Someone made 
a comment the other day on my TikTok that the intros are a little bit too long, right? So what I, I do, I cut out some of the uh, intro videos that I like to do, some of the intro scenes, and I shortened it up a little bit. So that's a great example of how I do listen and I do listen to feedback and I appreciate all the feedback. All right, subscribe as well, okay? If you subscribe, that helps our numbers. Thank you to all of our listeners, both domestically and internationally. We do this for you guys. All right, so that was about five minutes. Someone had said that uh, it takes me like six minutes to get to, <laughs> to get to the point. So eh, that's about right. I guess he is right. All right, so today we're going to talk about uh, race theory, the beginnings of racial theory. All right, um, and today's podcast is going to focus on the degeneration theory. All right. So there's like really two main theories of early racial thought, right? How did scientists kind of, especially in Europe, how did they look at the world? How did they begin to classify different human beings? How did they justify certain evil institutions like slavery? How did they justify that? How did they look outside and see other human beings in bondage and be okay with that, right? Or be, you know, kind of subdued in their opinions or observations about it. Well, you do it through science. You make up stuff, essentially, is what people did. They did it uh, through philosophy, right? Political philosophy, uh, philosophy, science, quote unquote, pseudosciences, so called scientific methods. They did it through religion, all right? There's a bunch of different ways. Today, we're going to talk about philosophy and science. All right? We got a few sources. We got some good ones today. The myth of race, the troubling persistence of an unscientific idea, and that was written by Mr. Robert W. Sussman. All right? John Locke from the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, the second treaties of government by Mr. John Locke, written in 1690, all right? And then you got The Spirit of Laws by Charles Montesquieu. Now, if you guys have studied philosophy, if you guys are political studies majors, political science, I'm sorry, political science majors, or government majors, or foreign, uh, foreign policy majors, or philosophy majors, or history majors, pretty much any liberal art, you've probably heard of John Locke and Charles Montesquieu. All right, these guys are world famous. Their names live on, their works live on, all right? But what you don't know, right, and what you're not taught in school is that their history has been whitewashed, partially. Now, that doesn't take away from the great work that they've done because they are geniuses. I say are and not were because their work still lives on today, right? So they're not dead and gone. I'm reading John Locke's Second Treaties of Government. He wrote it in 16 freaking 90, and I'm reading it in 2022. That is staying power. So they had some great um, material and some great thoughts. However, when it came to race, when it came to superiority versus the inferiority of certain populations, these guys were some of the worst, some of the most racist misogynistic, just ignorant people on the face of the earth, okay? And I know that's hard, probably hard for some people to hear, but it's true. 
I looked at the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy and I used it for as a source, but they didn't say anything about some of the stuff I'm about to talk about. So that's what I mean. A lot of their beliefs that don't kind of fit into the nice little pretty neat narrative that academia wants to wants to uh, create for them, a lot of that stuff is thrown to the side, right? Unless you really dig for it. All right, so we're talking about the uh, theory of race. It's called degeneration, all right? Degeneration. And it started in the 18th century, right? So the degeneration theory of race, it assumed that all humans were created by God, beginning with Adam and Eve. Non-whites, however, were thought to be inferior, and they were thought to need the guidance and control of rational, moral men, i.e., white, European, male Christians. Okay, so the original race, right, was white. Degeneration means that all the other races degenerated from white into whether it be black, uh, Asian, whatever, uh, indigenous. So those races were actually a fallen version of the original man. Does that make sense? So it's a weird combination of racism and religion and science. Well, pseudoscience, not real science. All right. So the lowly condition of non-whites was caused by some type of degenerative process related to climate or conditions of life. It could be maybe isolation from civilized Christian societies or maybe to some divine action by God, which was explained in the Bible, right? They weren't sure the exact reasons. Different scientists had different, uh, different scientists and different theologians had different opinions about what caused these fallen races to be so corruptible and so different than the original man, right? So there are a bunch of different theories. Some people thought it was climate. Some people thought, thought it was just how they live, their culture. Some people thought it was because they were not uh, indoctrin indoctrinated with Christianity. It just depended. Believe it or not, though, this was a liberal view at the time of racial differences <laughs> because the approach believed that these degenerate races could be fixed right you could fix them they're broken all right they're just broken temporarily but their black skin can be fixed and we'll show you how right their condition could be remedied by blessing them with the benefits of a proper european education and exposing them to European culture. This process would move much, much faster if they were also converted to Christianity. So, you know, the fallen races, all hope was not lost for them. They still could be saved if only they were given the proper opportunity to be saved. And you save them by educating them in the European manner and also give them a little bit of culture right helping them out give them a little culture and a little education and then even better give them your religion and that is a start on the right path right one of the earliest and most well-known proponents of the degenerate uh, degeneration theory was mr john locke john locke 1632 to 1704 he was a british philosopher oxford academic and medical researcher all right in his monumental 
an essay concerning human understanding, which was written in 1689, Locke penned one of the first great defenses of modern empiricism. And he attempts to determine, in his essay, the limits of human understanding in respect to a wide array of topics, right? He covers almost everything. Locke's essay explains what exactly we can legitimately claim to know and what we cannot claim to know. There are some things John Locke believes that as humans, we just cannot figure out. He was a really religious man. A lot of philosophers, a lot of academics were at this time. So he believed that human knowledge was limited, okay? Locke's commentary on opposition to authoritarianism, the separation of church and state, natural rights, and the social contract are foundational works for many academic disciplines. If you have studied liberal arts in a university in this country, in Europe, you have read John Locke. You might not remember, I remember reading John Locke. It was fuzzy when I was, re <laughs> when I was researching for this uh, podcast. I really had to kind of dig in it, but it was fuzzy, but I did it. But, but, I, but I was able to uh, remember, all right? Once I started it up again, I was able to remember it. So it's definitely something that you got to think about uh, and brush off the old cobwebs. But guess what? Once you brush it off, it all comes back to you, I'm telling you. Believe you me. Okay. So despite all these accomplishments and accolades, there has been a concerted effort right, to conveniently with white rock, whitewash other darker aspects of his thought, chiefly his racist worldview and his open disdain for all non-whites. For some reason, academia has chosen to ignore or brush aside his nasty, unscientific, and intellectually lazy views on racial difference and inequality. Now, I know that's a harsh criticism of a extremely influential figure in philosophy, but it's true. If you read his work from the perspective of a minority student, right, like me, if you read his work from a racial justice equality perspective, then you will be very disappointed in the quality of it, all right, because it's ignorant. Right? It's lazy. There's no science behind it. He has no evidence for any of the stuff he says. Right? What Locke did was he accepted the biblical account of human origins, but he also believed that the quality at creation and the endowment of natural rights to all humanity conveniently no longer applied to certain groups of people because they weren't using their land properly. <laughs> so what he's saying is when God created man, he gave everyone a certain quality, right? A certain natural right, a certain divineness, right? Divinity, I should say. He endowed them with these, God endowed humanity with these natural rights, this quality, this divine quality at the time of creation, right? It was supposed to be given to all humanity. But guess what? He was a huge proponent of property, right? A personal property and possession. 
of things. <laughs> so if these people that had these natural rights, if they weren't using their rights the proper way that he deemed fit, you can now take these rights from them. So what he's trying to say is if God gives you a right, okay, and he gives it to you out of the love of God's heart, right, out of his heart, and he expects you, once he gives it to you, to use it to your full potential. If you do not use what God has given you to your full potential, to its full potential, it is now forfeit. Therefore, someone else can come and take it. All right? Let me, let me uh, give you a direct quote. Quote, the same measures govern the possession of land too. Whatsoever he tilled and reaped, laid up and made use of before it spoiled, that was his peculiar right. Whatsoever he enclosed and could feed and make use of, the cattle and product was also his. But if either the grass of this enclosure rotted on the ground or the fruit of his planting perished without gathering and laying up, this part of the earth, notwithstanding his enclosure, was still to be looked on as waste and might be the possession of any other. 1690. Basically, right, I'm going to repeat what I just said. Locke believed, he was talking about natives, Indians, American Indians, uh, indigenous Americans that the British had run into in their travels. He believed that indigenous people were not putting enough labor into the land to produce what he deemed to be useful. Crops, livestock, fruit, etc. Therefore, they were violating natural law and their land was now forfeit. Quote, God gave the world to men in common, but since he gave it to them for their benefit and the greatest conveniences in life they were capable to draw from it, it cannot be supposed he meant it should always remain common and uncultivated. He have it to the use of the industrious and rational, and labor was to be his title to it. That is on page 18 of the Second Treaties of Government. So... What he's saying is God gave us this land to cultivate. The natives, a lot of them did not do farming, right? They hunted. They, they were hunter-gatherers. They would hunt. They would gather berries and fruits and vegetables from the land itself. They didn't actually tear the land up, cultivate, and farm. So what, what Locke is saying, hey, if you're not using this land, if you're not trying to get the best out of it, if you're not using its mineral resources, whether it be gold, silver, tobacco, whatever, sugar. If you're not using this stuff, you need to get off the land because we need to take it over and we need to uh, exploit it for all it's worth because God would want that, right? To Locke and many of his contemporaries, non-whites were, quote, failures, and much of their investigative effort went into determining why this was the case. Why were these non-white people, Caucasians, why were they struggling so much? Why did they not achieve what Europeans had achieved? So they tried to find out why. Why were they so incapable of civilization? Degeneration theorists attempted to explain that, quote, the factors that led some people to change from white-skinned to dark involved ways of life that were far inferior to those of Europeans. So they were, that's what they were trying to explain. They explained, like, look, they changed for some reason. They, the original man 
was a white-skinned Adam and a white-skinned Eve, a female. Somewhere along the line, these folks got dark. Why? And they also got inferior along the way as well. So we're trying to figure out, we're just trying to figure out and help them out. How did this happen to them? The French nobleman, politician, and political philosopher of the Enlightenment, Mr. Charles Montesquieu, was one of the first academics to develop an elaborate climate theory in 1748. Now, this climate theory is really interesting. He believed that climate and geography affected the temperaments and customs of a country's inhabitants and thus was responsible for the differences among humans and their cultures. These differences were not hereditary. If someone moved from one climate to another, one's temperament would change. So if I'm like really angry because I live in hot, sweaty, humid Houston and the weather's wild and you never know what to wear, you walk out in the beginning of the day and you need a sweatshirt and then by the end of the day, by the time you get off work, it's 95 degrees. If I just moved from here to a more moderate climate like St. Louis where they have seasons and it's cold in the winter and it's hot in the summer and I can freaking predict what the heck to wear every morning, maybe my temper temperament would change. Maybe I would be less grumpy. Maybe I would get more sleep, etc., etc. That's basically what he believed, right? Quote, if it be true that the temper, the temper of the mind and the passions of the heart are extremely different in different climates, the laws ought to be in relation both to the variety of those passions and to the variety of those tempers. Montesquieu, 1748. Montesquieu wrote in Spirit of the Laws that people in colder climates are stronger, smarter, have more energy, and are more courageous among many other superior traits. Quote, people are therefore more vigorous in cold climates. Here, the action of the heart and the reaction of the extremities of the fibers are better performed. The temperature of the humors is great. The blood moves freely towards the heart, and reciprocally, the heart has more power. This superiority of strength must produce various effects. For instance, a greater boldness, that is, more courage, a greater sense of superiority, that is, less desire for revenge, a greater opinion of security, that is, more frankness, less suspicion, policy, and cunning. Montesquieu. Montesquieu describes people in India, which was obviously a much warmer climate, as weak and timid. He believed the climate made them more inclined towards being barbarians. Quote, nature having framed those people of a texture so weak as to fill them with timidity has formed them at the same time of an imagination so lively that every object makes the strongest impression upon them. Another influential figure in the 18th century was Carl Linnaeus, 1707 to 1778, the founder of modern biology and the person who developed the system of zoological classification of species still in use today. Linnaeus, like Montesquieu, believed in the unity of mankind, right? So all men came from one source. They weren't different species. They came from one person. So all men came from Adam, right? That's the 
that's their belief system, the unity of all mankind. Linnaeus' goal was to systemize the naming of all plants and animals that God had created and then put them in order, okay? The order was based on an evolutionary scale. It was a creationist concept, right? So it was a religious concept. All species were created as fixed and separate species whose perfect representations could only be found in the mind of God. So we're works in progress. We'll never be perfect. Only God knows our perfect form. So he didn't really believe in the constant evolution of a species, right? He believed that they're on this earth. They're, they will evolve, but they will never hit the, the, perf the, you know, the perfect evolution, right? They, they won't ever be perfectly suited for their environment because only God knows that, right? Quote, the assumption that the world was hierarchically arranged, I can't say that word, was arranged in order, pervaded medieval Christian thought and continued without question in the outlook of the Enlightenment thinkers as well. Linnaeus adopted this view of the universe and arranged a specific picture of the world as a series of steps running from God at the top and descending down, right? So God was at the top, and it was like a descending stairwell. Like, you know, at the front stoop of a, of, of a house in New York City, you know. You ever been in a city uh, in the Northeast, and the, in the, in the row homes have stoops, right, with the, with the uh, steps that go straight up to the front door? That's the chain of being that we're about to talk about, right? So God was at the top of the stoop, and the lowest invertebrate, like the lowest, lowest animal was at the bottom. So God at the top, and it descended down from there. Each step represented a different entity of the living world, all the way down to the inorganic, like a rock, right? I think the rock was literally like at the bottom, like a rock. This arrangement became known as the great chain of being. Linnaeus devised the term homo sapiens for humans and considered all humans to be members of the same species. He placed humans in the order of primates based on atomical similarities, which made his peers very uneasy at the time. So this was like a cutting-edge uh, belief, right, that humans and primates had anything in common and was, like, unheard of. Another contemporary of Linnaeus was a, that was ahead of his time was Georges Leclerc de Buffon. So we're just going to call him Buffon. 1707. To 1788. So if I'm slaying these these names, a lot of them are French, and I talk like I have peanut butter in my mouth, as you could tell from earlier in the podcast. I can't pronounce anything. But Buffon was perhaps the greatest naturalist of the 18th century. Buffon ordered the most complete, he offered the most complete explanation of human variation of his time in his epic 43-volume Histoire Naturale written in 1785 to 1787. Buffon talks extensively about the variations within the human species. Quote, humans are not composed of essentially different species among themselves, but on the contrary, there is only one sole species of man which has multiplied and covered all the surfaces of the earth and has been subjected to different changes due to influences of the climate, differences in nutrition, and those of manners of life, Buffon, 1785. However, Buffon did not believe or did believe 
that the ideal human lived in a colder climate. He was a big climate guy. Like a lot of his uh, contemporaries, he believed that the ideal humans lived in Central Europe. The further one moved away from Central Europe, humanity drifted farther and farther away from the original ideal man. Quote, the best climate is found between 40 and 50 degrees. It is here that one finds the most beautiful and most fit humans. It is in this climate that one finds the ideal of the natural color of, of man. It is here where one finds the model or the origin from which is derived all of the other nuances of color or of beauty. Buffon, 1785. Okay, so who exactly created these categories, right? So we got these guys, they're starting to kind of, you know, kind of strike around it. They're not quite there at the racial categories yet. They're getting there, right? They're slowly starting to kind of think about, okay, wait, why are we white and they're not? Why are we so much better than them and they're so in <laughs> inferior, right? That's what they're thinking in their head. Like, we're trying to figure out why this is the case. You know, we have clothes on. We go, we go visit certain uh, areas of the world, and these people don't have any clothes on, or they have less clothes on than us. They must be barbarians. They must be savages. There got to be something that happened to them that they fell so far, right? So this is what they're trying to do, and this leads into the creation of racial categories, right? Because humans, remember I told you guys in the last podcast, humans are very, very in inquisitive by nature. Every time, you know, we walk into a Walmart, we walk into the gas station, we're always looking at people's differences. We're always scanning everyone. Right? Oh, that guy's short. That lady's tall. Uh, his shirt is blue. Oh, he has a, a bushy eyebrows. He has a mullet. <laughs> Whatever, right? So we're always analyzing and putting people in categories. This is the first time that people, at least in Europe, have really tried to look at the world and figure out why things are the way they are. In their head, of course. And you can see through their kind of slow plodding march forward, you can see how they're marching toward a superiority and an inferiority complex, how they're marching toward this blatant racism. It's a slow progression because at first it's almost like innocent. Well, oh, uh, well, yeah, it's, it's got to be cold. That's why we're white because it's cold and it's hot and they're black. But the, where it gets insidious is where you start saying it's because we're the ideal human. We're the best. God made the white man. That was the first man, and they're all like fallen versions of us. That's when it starts to get insidious. And when you see that starting, then you know we're on a very, very dark path, and we're going nowhere fast, all right? Nowhere good fast, at least. All right, guys, quick musical interlude. We'll be back in a flash. I hope you're enjoying the podcast. I have a new microphone, so if it sounds a little different, we're just working out the uh, the kinks, right? The wrinkles, ironing out the wrinkles. God bless y'all.
right, everybody. We are back from the musical interlude. Once again, I will remind you for the 15th time this podcast, please turn on your notifications. If you could follow us also on Instagram, we're at at Ape Academy Podcast. We are on Twitter at A underscore defensive. We are on TikTok at Ape Academy Pod. We are on Facebook, Ape Defensive Solutions. We would love for you guys to join us on these social media platforms. There's a lot more information. If you combine our social media with our podcast, you will get a lot of great stuff, a lot of great content, and I'm sure you will enjoy it. I promise you, all right? I don't put out any bull crap because guess what? I only put out stuff I would want to hear unless I'm a total dork, which is arguable. <laughs> But it's debatable. But uh, yeah, I think I put out pretty good stuff that I would want to hear. So check it out, all right? So who created racial categories? Easy answer. The German physician, John Bolmenbach. Okay? Bolmenbach. Now, I know I'm ruining his name because he's German. So it probably has a crazy accent on it. But he was born in 1752. He died in 1840. Blum... Blumenbach. I'm just going to call him Blumenbach. He's often thought as the father of physical anthropology and was a disciple of Linnaeus. So he was a student of Linnaeus. Remember, we talked about Linnaeus a few minutes ago. So he was also a believer in the unity of mankind. So he believed that God created all humans. Blumenbach believed that all humans were the same species. He also insisted that there was no real distinction between groups and that racial characteristics changed from one person to another. He was among the first to reference race specifically, but he believed that divisions of human groups were arbitrary, right? It was really just used for, for the convenience of the classifier. So he didn't really buy into a whole lot of the bull crap. He was just saying, look, I'm breaking it up into races just to make it easier for me to categorize. To put, <laughs> I'm creating boxes, so it makes it easier for me to put people in boxes, if that makes sense. In 1775, he, pub he published his d dissertation called On the Natural Variety of Mankind, in which he stated that he had organized his human racial classification system simply to make it easier for himself for convenience only. His book became the standard for discussion about human races. Blumenbach speci uh, specified four at first, then he changed it to five varieties of humans with uh, associated with certain major regions of the world. His five races were listed as Caucasian, Mongoloid, Ethiopian, American, and Malay, or Malay. The categories became widely accepted by the educated academic community and with slight variations they're still basically being used today in his scheme Blumenbach developed two major ideas that have endured in the history of racism and are still unfortunately with us today right and I'm sure maybe I'm sure right I'm sure he didn't sit there and say look I, this is going to be in the future forever right this is going to represent racism forever I highly doubt that like he admitted in his dissertation, 
he was really just trying to make it easier for himself. But unfortunately, this is his legacy. Okay, the first major idea. First, he coined the term Caucasian. And this referred to people of European descent. And in doing so, in creating this term, he defined Caucasians as the most beautiful, the closest to representing God's image and the original humans from which all other varieties had degenerated. So by actually giving Europeans a name, Caucasian, they now had a reference. They now had an official title that they could say, look, we are reading the work of Blumenbach. He's highly respected. Everyone agrees with him. He's a religious man. According to Blumenbach, we are the original man. Everyone else descended from us, right? They're just uh, degenerated forms of us, right? So we're closest to God's image. So we now have an official classification that we can now put ourselves in because before all we're really doing is looking at skin color and we're like okay well they're dark I'm light why is that but now we have an actual system that he set up that we can now place people in we can place people in boxes it is important to note that none of these theories not a single one was based on any type of real science <laughs> that's the you know what the most crazy thing is about this entire, like, um, well, actually, still to this day sometimes, a lot of the scientific community, at least back then, in the 1800s and 1700s, there was no actual science being done. Like, there were scientists, but they were basically just observing. Like, you know, they would dissect an animal, and they'd be like, oh, that bone looks interesting. Oh, this bone looks like that bone. That means that it looks like they're descended from each other. Hmm, let me study this other, like the original. So it, it was just observation. There were no real scientific methods. So it was just personal opinion. And it was taken as scientific fact, which is, which today, you know, uh, there's a lot of like these so-called, you know, scientists or scientific experts on Facebook. You know, the guy that drives the UPS truck, but now he's, he's an expert on vaccines. It's just observation, right? It's just opinion, right? It's still going on today. But Back then, it was accepted as real fact, real science. Secondly, he accepted the understanding uh, that one variety was better than all the others. He believed in a system of humanity that was based on ranks, ranking, hierarchy. He created a clear pyramid with Caucasians at the top. So if you look him up, you'll see there's a, um, a drawing, like there's, there's an outline that he did, and it's basically a pyramid of skulls, right? And on top is the Caucasian skull, and everything else in a pyramid kind of fashion goes down from there. So on the bottom, of course, is the African, right? And then you have the, um, the indigenous native on the other side. So just imagine like a triangle with uh, Caucasian at the top, then you have various skulls from other races making up the, uh, the sides of the uh, pyramid. Make sense? So obviously they're at the head, right? He had a clear delineation. Before him, he had a, uh, a person that he looked up to, another scientist named Colbert. Colbert. Before him, he had described only three human variations. And he had maintained 
that the Mongolian race remained stationary with regard to civilization and that the black race had never progressed beyond utter barbarity, right? They never had a civilization. They never contributed anything to, to society but being naked savages running around the jungle. That's pretty much what Colbert believed. He was the scientist before Blumberbach who first uh, created a, a rudimentary system of variation, but it is widely accepted that that the five category system was the standard at the time. Okay. Historian Stephen J. Gould believed that Blumenbach's hierarchical model of human races was a major factor in the creation of the modern racist paradigm. Quote, the shift from a geographic to a hierarchical ordering of human diversity, I cannot say that word, marks a fateful transition in the history of Western science for what? Short of railroads and nuclear bombs, had what had more practical impact? In this case, almost entirely negative upon our collective lives and nationalities, right? What more had a greater impact? Ironically, J.F. Blumberbach is the focus of this shift, right? Let me read that again. The shift from geographic to a hierarchical ordering of human diversity marks a fateful transition in the history of Western science. For what, right? For what? Short of railroads and nuclear bombs had more practical impact in this case, almost entirely negative upon our collective lives and nationalities. Ironically, J.F. Blumenbach is the focus of this shift. Gould found this ironic because amongst Blumenbach's peers who all believed in the concept of the degenerated varieties of, of mankind who believed the races could be regenerated, right, back to whiteness if they were given the proper education, out of all these guys, Blumenbach was perhaps the least racist and the most liberal of them all. And it's ironic because it was his system that kind of cemented these racist ideologies later on, right? However, no matter how liberal he was, right, he even had a library in his home devoted exclusively to the writings of black authors, and he praised the, quote, faculties of these, our black brethren. He campaigned for the abolition of slavery, and interestingly enough, he asserted the moral superiority of slaves to their captors. He believed slaves were more moral, more moral, <laughs> more moral than slave owners, okay? I love making, man, sometimes you gotta laugh at yourself, you know, when you mess up, like, my wife always uh, makes, makes fun of me because I stutter sometimes. Like, if I stutter one time, she's like, doo, 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 doo. it's horrible. However, in the end, Blumenbach ended up with a system with one single race, Caucasian at the top. He assumed that race, that the Caucasian race was representative of the original creation. It was the closest one. And then he envisioned two lines of departure from this ideal toward more and more degeneration. Inherent in the degeneration theory of race was a concept of change right? Change happened. Blumenbach, in writing about human varieties, 
believed that the further population migrated from the origin of the Caucasus region of Europe, the more they degenerated, the more they were affected by their environments and conditions of life. He identified climate, nutrition, and mode of life as a major as major factors promoting these changes. Okay, so the more you moved away from the Caucasus regions of Europe, the more you were affected by climate, by the heat, by the wind, by the rain. The more you were affected by the food that you ate. Because guess what? You're really, really far from your source, from your original source, which was the Caucasus regions of Europe. Of course, this is nonsense. We found out later that the original man was actually in Africa, but they don't know this at the time. And of course, being ethnocentric, they think that Europe is the center of everything. So it's kind of to be expected that philosophers of this time would think that Europe is the best. But what made European thought at this time unique was how they saw everyone else as degraded and them as superior as the original man. Thank you for joining me. That's all we got for now. In the next episode, we'll talk about the second theory which I will not tell you yet. <laughs> no, not yet, not yet. Once again, turn on your post notification, guys. Put God first. Put your family first. Stay hungry. Get after it. Work hard. Study. Do not waste any time. I know I don't. As soon as I'm done recording this, I'm going to go and read some more and get ready for the next one. God bless y'all. Stay safe. It's a crazy world out here. Our prayers at Ape Academy go to the people of Ukraine. We pray for peace. We pray for freedom. If you have to fight, now's the time. God bless everyone. Enjoy the podcast and enjoy the rest of your evening. Ape!